0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the roadmap from Auto Finance News. Since 1996, the nation's leading newsletter on automotive lending and leasing. I'm Whitney McDonald, and this is the December episode of the Industry Pulse, a monthly market update on trends in the auto finance, in credit, quali- in credit quality, credit demand, residual values, regulatory compliance, macroeconomics, and more. It is my pleasure to introduce two familiar faces from McGlinchey partner and lawyer Kelly Lipinski, and Mark Edelman, chair of the National Consumer Financial Services Compliance Practice. Thank you for being here for our last Industry Pulse of the year. A theme since the pandemic hit has been the transition of technological advances, shifting business strategies, and how to implement those new products to best serve partners and consumers while remaining compliant. I'm looking forward to diving into this topic with you both today. Thanks for both being here. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I, I jumped the gun to say hi, but thank you Auto <laughs> Finance News for
1: hosting us and welcoming us to this, to this event.
0: Yes, of course. Um, well, with all of that, let's go ahead and get started. So um, that brings us to our first question. Auto Finance News has been following the refinancing in the market. So what are you guys seeing in terms of refinancing?
2: Well, I think the first thing to to think about is, you know, refinancing probably is gonna diminish considerably in light of inflation and most likely actions taken by the Federal Reserve to increase interest rates, um, which is one of the main reasons why, refinancing exists to give individuals a lower rate for current debt. So I think what we'll probably be seeing is maybe a shift toward um, offerings that tend to come about when you're in a rising interest rate environment as a way to help to sustain the payment amount for the consumers. And one of those ways is obviously a a trend toward more leasing where um, you can have Um, uh, lower monthly payments, um, and particularly now with a, a rising or a more secure market for used cars, more certainty with the residual value. So there's a potential shift we may see in a transition to leasing. And then based on other activities we've seen in other rising interest rate environments, uh, you may see more creative financing come about, like balloon financing, where it's a financing where the vehicle is sold and financed by the consumer, but there's a higher final payment to the extent that state law would permit that. Um, but those are, those are, I think, some of the things that are potentially there, which obviously both of them may involve um, different strategies taken by the finance company. Certainly leasing is a different body of law than financing. And so there are different aspects that need to be taken into account as you look at the underwriting and the servicing and certainly the asset recovery as it relates to the leasing as opposed to a finance vehicle.
1: I agree. I would also point out that I think the last few years, a lot of new participants in the market, to use that phrasing, right? People who are trying to challenge the incumbent finance programs have viewed refi as a really uh, natural first step to jump into that auto finance market. Um, Based on the features that you've described, Mark, I'm actually thinking there's gonna be two things that we see a little bit more at a a business level. One, I'm noticing that some companies that have been sort of dipping their toe into refi have a real strong interest in trying to find a way to facilitate purchase money transactions, which has been a surprising evolution for me. Um, They're sort of viewing it. Hey, we sort of know a little bit about auto finance. Now let's actually deal with the dealers and let's try to offer some alternatives to more traditional financing. We sort of know the bones about titling. We know the bones about consumer credit for vehicles secured. Let's go see if we can help dealers find new creative ways to facilitate consumer financing. The other trend at a macro level that I suspect we'll see with the refi market because it's gonna get tighter in 2022, it's a trend that we've been observing for probably the last two quarters this year is a lot more market consolidation. Um, I think the market got very, very saturated in the last couple of years with challengers that wanted to really utilize a low rate market and offer refi loans, right? It was a very natural, we do personal loans unsecured. Now we're gonna do refi auto. It's a really tight and tough market. It's very competitive. And I don't think the interest rate environment will support such a diverse and fragmented market. So we're already starting to see some companies looking to consolidate, to acquire platforms, to acquire companies that maybe had been in that broker seat and say, hey, we want to bring this all in-house. I think we're going to start to see that trend ramp up in the first couple of quarters in 2022 as well.
0: Well, thank you guys both for that insight. Um, Moving on to another topic that we have been following closely um, that I'm excited to hear your guys' input is how is evolving technology and the accompanying data privacy laws that govern it it going to impact the industry in this coming year?
1: It's interesting. I think this question and auto finances news coverage of it is primarily... Um, based on some of the developments we've seen at the state level to further regulate and, and protect consumers, the use of their data, understanding where it goes, who who has access to it. And of course, it was inspired by the European Union with the GDPR. But We've seen a couple of states that have created much more consumer protective, consumer protection type statutes. So at a very short level, however, we have found that those laws have not been as disruptive in terms of impairing companies' ability to get where they want to go with sharing information with their affiliates or to offer creative marketing strategies. It has created a much more robust and thoughtful process that needs to be considered, right? It's not that you can just fly information around and and disregard privacy laws. There's a much more highly regulated regime in which you have to do it, but we're still finding ways to help companies Get to where they want to go with sharing information for business purposes. I will say that information sharing and privacy um, will, will probably continue to be a focus at the federal level as well. And I think last week we saw the CFPB request a ton of data about companies that are sort of in that, you know. by by now pay later kind of market. Um, And there's been a little bit of inquiry and curiosity from the CFPB to gather information about how customer information is being used, how it's being gathered, who has access to it, et cetera. Is that a direct challenge based under the privacy laws that you asked about? Probably no, but I think it reflects an overarching federal level curiosity in terms of how companies gather customer information, how they're protecting customer information as well.
2: You no, know, I think that's a very good point. And, you know, telematics have been around for a while in terms of vehicle and gathering information. Um, and you know, there's always been a concern about how that inf- how that use of telematics is being disclosed to the customer, their vehicle usage and things like that. And Kelly kind of touched upon the big concern about what is how is that information then being used in furtherance of, for the products um, and beyond just the use of a motor vehicle. Um, And so that's where the states have picked up on a number of those issues where consumers from the financing side want to know, you know, when you're gathering information about me, how is it being used, but also when you're gathering information about me. And so I think it still also goes back to the basic privacy concerns that exist about disclosing to the consumer generally, the fact that we will be gathering information about you and your habits and where you go and The radio stations you've listened to or whatever it is that's going on with your use of the vehicle that the consumer may not expect to be happening. So um, I'm not sure it's necessarily an impact on origination other than making sure the customer is aware that they're purchasing a vehicle or that as a part of their use of the vehicle, this information is going to be gathered and how it may be used.
0: Yeah, well, we will definitely be continuing to follow that new technology as it arises and staying compliant with implementing it. Um, Also, something that we cover often is new product offerings. So what do you guys see that's new on the horizon for voluntary production protection products in terms of regulatory scrutiny and state action?
1: You know, Whitney, if we think about what's on the horizon, this is a topic that I unfortunately think nothing's going to change if only it's gonna get more challenging, right? So if we think about um, you know, the world getting better or an uh, optimist in some of us of like maybe 2022 will be a little bit better in terms of um, hurdles and challenges from a business and legal perspective, this is not one of the topics that I think we put in that category. So voluntary protection products is a big part of my practice and, and at your terminology there, you're referring to also, you know, people would refer to as maybe ancillary products, um, gap waiver, credit insurance, et cetera. Those are products that continue to catch the attention of state and federal regulatory agencies. They also continue to catch the attention of consumers directly, right? Consumer advocates, plaintiffs themselves, uh, district attorneys that are representing the citizens in their particular jurisdiction. And I think we're going to see greater, greater focus on the, the the refund issue. I mean, that's been the challenge for the last couple of years, led out of course with Colorado. And I don't think they're planning to uh, shift into neutral. They're gonna keep it at a high level and a high gear. But I think Colorado, a lot of market participants understand what's expected in Colorado. We don't, we maybe not like it. We may not find that it's as clear um, and supported by the regulation as maybe some would prefer, but we at least understand what to expect in Colorado. There's ma- there are many other states, however, that at least are bubbling under the water. A- and we have our usual suspects of states like California like New York, although they don't have clear laws. But we're seeing more creative theories. Instead of a gap statute or an ancillary product or insurance statute, we're finding greater appetite to utilize the UDEP principles. And so we're aware of a company, for example, that last week was named in a lawsuit challenging the gap refund practice. not under a gap law not under an insurance statute, but under just this trade practice theory. So I think we're gonna see more of that in 2022, consumers and advocates on behalf of consumers saying, hey, how you are retaining under refunds is just unfortunately a deceptive or an abusive practice that harms consumers. I think that's gonna create um, some challenges for the industry that need to be addressed. I also think just one other final point in talking to companies right now, there's been a million dollar question that's been on the table, right? We have states that regulate and really get into the minutia of how you go about refunding consumers, their unearned refunds or their unearned fees. Companies are having really meaningful high-level conversations right now about voluntarily following some of the trends that have been established through private settlements, through agreements with AGs and sort of proactively refunding unearned fees to consumers even when the law does not require us to do so. So I think we're finding that to use the the concept of regulation by enforcement, this is is a space where that is happening actively and we may find more and more companies in the first couple of quarters in 2022 announce or implement some back office rules to follow suit with some of the private developments that have been coming out of Colorado and those other jurisdictions.
2: And and let me also add that the CFPB is dipping their toe into this. It is really more of a, a state issue, but the CFPB in their supervisory highlights from the summer picked up in an examination and highlighted a finance company that was refunding unearned premiums Um, for a product, but was using the wrong mathematical formula. So they were using the actuarial method as opposed to a pro rata method. And where this can, you know, yes, that potentially they viewed that as a UDAP violation, that it was deceptive because the consumer had contracted for refunds to be calculated a certain way and the creditor didn't follow that. One of the issues that this is going to present to creditors is the fact that there are—they often don't control the contractual terms of the third-party products that are being purchased and financed as a part of the original vehicle sale. And so, um, unless they are specifically coding and matching to the customer how what the contractual statement is with respect to, you know, refunds there's a possibility that they're trying to adopt what could be viewed as the most favorable for the consumer. Um, And it's possible that depending on where the consumer fits on the life of that, uh, how long the product has been there before it either voluntarily or involuntarily is terminated because the contract is in default, the customer may not get the better bargain out of that if they just assume across the board, we're always gonna use an actuarial method where pro rata may have been better for that consumer. The flip side being, we're always going to use pro rata or possibly actuarial may have been better for the consumer if that's what the contract said. So it puts a really, that comment from the CFPB really, I think puts a big burden on financing sources because they really don't have, they could have hundreds of different products that are financed um, from various dealers within their network. And they don't have really the capacity to try to track other than what the state law requires, to go beyond and see if there's something in addition that might have been contractually uh, provided for in the the voluntary protection product that was financed.
1: Mark, what's interesting about that section you reference? I just pulled it up here. You know, it talked about servicers, and this is another you know layer on the complexity of the issue. It's not just that we have tremendous variation on the forms, we have tremendous variation at state level. We're also now adding a dynamic of perhaps a finance company relying on a servicer to effectuate the process, right? And that goes back to the age old concept of service provider oversight. And that may be a topic that requires a little bit more precise and in the minutia kind of follow-up with servicers to figure out, hey guys, Let's peel back the curtain a little bit and understand how you are actually calculating these, these refunds, right? I think that's maybe a sleeper issue as well.
2: Yeah, no, that's a very good point because typically service contracts or extended warranties or whatever it is that are there use a third-party administrator. The, the finance company isn't the one that processes the claims or whatever it is that comes through. And you know that's a very good point. To, to It adds an additional burden on the finance company, not only to make sure that they've got the right people doing it, but that this level is Kelly's minutia, which again, is all part of what compliance is about. It's all about following and being in compliance with, you know, all of the requirements. It just adds another layer of oversight and external um, supervision.
0: Yes, thank you both for those responses. Um, we'll be following state by state those regulations, um, looking ahead, but... Kind of to close this out a little bit, looking into 2022, in the coming months, what are we going to be seeing as far as in-vehicle payments and connected cars technology?
1: I, this is a really interesting topic and I, I can't tell you, you know, scripture and verse why it's so interesting because this is really a trend, right? If, if I'm sort of looking into the horizon, Whitney, of things and market developments that may have an impact on business and the law, this is something that we're monitoring, right? And does it affect us directly in the U.S. right now? Probably no. Does it affect us in the U.S. And for the first quarter of 22? Probably no. But there's a, a really fascinating trend that's coming out of Europe. And Mercedes-Benz and I think Volkswagen have already publicly announced partnerships with Visa, Um, to facilitate in-vehicle payments. And it's interesting because it's not just payments on your car notes or your, your credit obligations to that particular finance company. There's an appetite to allow consumers to buy and pay for a lot of other goods and services. And so we're noticing and sort of tracking this trend, waiting for it to cross the Atlantic. Um, but as we saw with GDPR, you know, privacy and, and sort of cutting edge technology-based issues do make their way here. And I think companies are probably evaluating that domestically. Um, we're not there yet in the U.S. to facilitate that, but I think there will be a trend and sort of an appetite in the U.S. in the next year or so to facilitate in-car payments. now. There are, of course, a lot of privacy issues that come into that, authenticating the identity of who the heck is actually requesting the payment, to which account is it coming from. We have a regulatory regime that is different than the EU. Um, obviously, privacy protections, we're getting a little bit more analogous and they're getting a little bit more similar, but in terms of just the comprehensive nature of consumer financial protection in the US with our payments laws, our payment systems, et cetera, It's not a perfect one-for-one match, and there will be some challenges to make it go live as quickly, but this is a trend that I think has no, it's not slowing down, and I think we're going to have a lot of interest, both from consumers, this is not going to just be a market-driven development, this is going to be a consumer-driven development as well. This is what consumers want, and this is what a lot of manufacturers and finance companies I think want to respond to and meet the customers where they are
2: i agree with everything kelly said it sounds cool which means it'll happen eventually um and it really becomes an interesting question because is it a manufacturer question or is it a financing source question Mm -hmm. because you know it's a payment processing that's really tied into the vehicle itself that's right um as opposed to the financing of of the vehicle so you have manufacturers who really don't deal with this side of the house um you know, that's not their business. And so it will be interesting to see how that all plays together because it also isn't a piece of the financing side because the financing side is a closed-end finance. So, you know, you're paying for the vehicle. So the question is, how is all that interplay with each other and who's going to have responsibility um, and how is all that going to work? And is it going to expand some of the opportunities for the financing sources to maybe provide an open-end credit or some type of situation for the individual to use through the vehicle that they didn't manufacture. Uh, there, there's a lot of moving parts here, um, and uh, it sounds exciting. And, uh, you know, I think it's something that we, from a compliance perspective, find all kinds of fun issues that are there. Um, and I use the fun in air quotes, but it's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> reality, okay. This, this is
1: a fun one. I think there's it enough... Is. With payments that are coming onto this too, that I think it's really exciting.
2: Yeah. And it's, you know, it's an intersection of, as Kelly said, consumer demand with a desire to make sure that there are protections that go around it um, and, you know, making sure there's an appetite for it in the market and all the other hurdles. And it's just another example of 21st century technology dealing with 1970s laws and trying to figure out how to navigate through all the different. potential hurdles that need to be overcome to make things happen.
0: Yes, well, just as long as you guys are following it, we are also following it too and covering it and these partnerships and kind of just watching it progress to see what's gonna be coming next in that um, in that area. Um, Mark and Kelly, thank you again, both for joining us today and for the insightful conversation that you brought. Um, I think that about closes is out for this month's Industry Pulse. Thanks for joining us on the roadmap. Please rate us on whichever platform you use to listen to the program and follow us on both Twitter and LinkedIn. We will see you online at autofinancenews.net and here next time.